You are listening to The Recovered Therapist, brought to you by FreshOutOfPlans.com. I'm Jeannie Griffin, and I'll be your host. Instead of focusing on labels, diagnoses, and psychobabble, we keep things honest, simple, and hopeful so that you can grow personally and spiritually. Thank you for joining me. Let's talk about what is said and what is heard. And this phenomenon goes on today in your life, but it also started in childhood. So, for instance, you may overhear a conversation or something may be said directly to you, and you yet you interpret it differently. For instance, uh, if a family is having difficulty with poverty or finances, the child may hear them talking about that and then conclude that I must be a burden or they would have more money if they hadn't had me or, you know, the self-blame kind of thing. But they also may conclude that I need to require less so that they have more money or they may look at us the situation and come up with a decision. For instance, um, I looked at my mother's depression and I thought, oh gosh, if I could just make her smile, then she wouldn't be so depressed. And then my father's alcoholism, I would say, if I could make him laugh, then maybe he wouldn't drink. And then if he didn't drink and she's not depressed and she's happy, then they'll get along and then we'll be a happy family. So I turned the circumstance of what was happening into something that I needed to solve, I needed to do. So my my mission to make sure people are happy so that blah, blah, blah started really early. I was working with a, a woman that had been bullied and she internalized everything that was said. And it's like, well, if only I could be perfect or if only I could do this better or if only I could buy her gifts, then she would not bully me and she would be my friend. It's very common that this kind of interpretation happens in childhood. And then what we don't realize is that pattern is established. And then we go through our life trying to fulfill that either I'm going to fix it or that that self-deprecation. And we get to be, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, and realize that we're letting that little child make decisions for us based on what they heard. I know that that when I was uh, searching to reconcile my relationship with a higher power, I had been comfortable with, with religion and the church I was raised in until my father died. And then I began questioning, but I rode the coattails of my mother's faith and kind of skated through that eventually, kind of believing what she had believed. And, you know, it was kind of a band-aid, but it got me through. Then several years later, when she died and I was barely 21, I rejected everything. And then after I had my daughter, I thought, well, you know, I need to raise her with some sort of faith. I can't just you know, have her put whatever I'm going through on her. So I began this search. And I would go to people that I knew had faith. I knew they did. And I would ask them about it. And they would try to tell me. 
And all I heard was just platitudes. I, I couldn't get it. And what I was interpreting is, well, what if this solid faith that they have is something that's only available to them and not me? Or what if this is all a hoax and there is no such thing as a creator or great spirit or God of my understanding or any of that? And so it was a very scary proposition that I just kept putting on the back burner until, of course, I was fresh out of plans. And I was working with a woman the other day, and and uh, when she would struggle and go to her mentors, and she would ask for some guidance or help, they would either quote a Bible verse or they would say, well, I'll pray for you. And what she heard was, I don't have that kind of faith. What if I'm going to go to hell because I don't have that kind of faith? What if that faith is not available to me? And it just drove her into worse depression, and she didn't you know, bother to say, I'm in terrible shape here, because it was just too scary. Now, many times I'll work with people, and they'll make these decisions, and they'll be like six or seven, and then we realize they're 35 today and they're still going around in life making decisions and letting that little seven-year-old make a decision based on those thoughts. Now, we either, as children, beat ourselves up uh, or we take on the responsibility. Like, oh, my mom's so depressed, I'll make her happy. My dad's alcoholic and he's unhappy, so I'll make him happy. Nobody turned to me and said, Jeannie, it's your responsibility to make these people happy so that the parents get along and then your life is secure. Nobody said that to me. But the whole idea of holding my breath when somebody's not happy or when somebody, there might be tension in the air, was something I did up into adulthood. And it was just a throwback to that little kid saying, oh dear, oh dear, what can I do? And what I actually traced it to as well is I was a smoker, a heavy smoker for many years. And I finally did what I asked clients to do, play detective. And I thought, what is it about the cigarette? What's my favorite cigarette? And I was the, I was a dropout of every school of stop smoking. And I'd be hypnotized. All I'd do is fall asleep because I had a new baby and I was dead tired. And, um, I got moved up to the front of the class where we were in Lazy Boy recliners and the psychologist could wiggle my toe and wake me up. A lot of good that did. I just had a good rest, 30-minute sleep, and then got in my car, drive home, and smoked a cigarette. So I kept thinking, what is this cigarette? I finally discovered that my very favorite cigarette was the one at the end of the evening when everybody was asleep and the house was quiet, and I had done all the chores and everything that I could and was, quote, supposed to do, and I was rewarding myself with this thing that might kill me in the long run. Um, and I thought, wow, wow, where did that come from? But it was just another way of me telling myself that, you know, my anxiety or that, that holding my breath, walking on eggshells, was rooted in my childhood, young, young age. And what I really wanted in that cigarette was that first deep, deep, deep drag, that first breath. 
So one of the ways I used to get rid of the cigarettes is when I wanted that deep breath, I took it. I wasn't smoking. I just took that breath. And it was a way of undoing, letting that little scared, anxiety-filled, holding my breath child or breathing shallowly run my life. And even to this day, there are times that I realize my shoulders are up high and I think, drop your shoulders, relax, take a breath. So look at your childhood. Ask yourself, what are some of the things that people told me or that I heard, overheard, and what decisions did I make? There's a line in the big book from Alcoholics Anonymous that says, "Some we invariably find that we make decisions based on self, which later put us in a position to be hurt. What decisions did you make based on your own safety, own immediate needs that later put you in a position to be hurt? Now, if you're having trouble with that coming up, then just say this mantra, reveal to me what you would have me know about whatever, fill in the blank. Reveal to me what you would have me know about this situation in childhood. Reveal to me what you'd have me know about one decision that I made that is still hurting me in adulthood. Try that and see if you can't come up with what was said and what you heard what was overheard, and what you heard. Thank you for listening to The Recovered Therapist, where we keep topics honest, simple, and hopeful. I love you. There's not a damn thing you can do about it. Until next time.